Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. Good morning, guys. <laughs> I've taken up like three packs a day as a New Year's resolution, so this is, my, this is my new voice. I've never been a good singer, and I think if I got real raspy, I can just go full Tom Waits, and nobody knows who Tom Waits is here. Dang it. Um, so anyway, that's my path. I am old. Thank you. Um, so we're going to finish this sermon series on, um, on, on words that come along with Christ- being Christian. There's, it's a unique vocabulary. Every, every faith, every tradition has its own unique vocabulary. Um, and so we got to this week, and I was trying to figure out what, um, what word to use. I know Jared's not here this morning. Uh, to make Jared happy, I would use the word tithe. Um, you, guys, you guys should be giving money to the church, lots of money, oodles and oodles of money to the church. Um, we've got some project going on. It's going to be really expensive. We need money. Um, my kids are starving. Give money to the church. Um, so I was going to do tithe, and I was like, no, that's a, that's a, it's a good word. It's not a good word to end on. And I, the, the word that struck out to me, and I thought I was being cute. We'll see if it works or not. It may not work. Um, there's this word logos in the Greek, which means word, right? So we're going to end our sermon series on words with the word word, because um, I thought it was really clever in my head. We'll see if that pays off. I'm not quite sure it's going to. Um, but as a way of introducing the idea, the logos or the word um, I should introduce myself to those of you who don't know me well. I'm a tad bit, just a little, just a little argumentative. Um, and I know some of this is shocking to some of you guys. Um, my kids have found that almost everything is a, at least a point for further conversation for me, that I like to nuance and I like to hem and I like to get into like the details of the conversation. I argue everything. And I know that it's bad, I, and I, some of you probably don't believe this. I really am working on it. I'm trying to be less argumentative. Um, and the trick with that, the problem with me being argumentative is I'm pretty good at deploying words. I'm pretty good at using words um, to win. I've, I've never been super strong. I've never been the kind of guy who's going to be able to make my way through life by, like, physically fighting. So when teachers or adults would be like, use your words, I was like, cool, because I can be way meaner with my words than I can with my fists. And, um, and I got that. And one of the things that I've realized about myself is that a lot of the time, the arguments that I end up in are not because we have a profound disagreement about the thing. It's that we haven't come to an agreement about what the words mean. That a lot of times disconnect that happens between people is because we use words and we think that other people mean the same thing that I mean when I use the words. You guys know that we've been going back and forth with this other church in the city that's interested in us sharing space with them. And multiple times I have to be like, tell me what you mean when you use this word. The word was offensive. And it was in our lease. And if the, the line, the lease, the line, the lease was like, well, if you do anything offensive, I'm like, we're going to need to be real, <laughs> real specific. And then we went back and forth 10 times. And I was like, you know what? 
let's just take the word offensive out. Because I don't think we're ever going to agree on what that is, right? In, real, in a real sense, offensive is really subjective as a term. Um, you, my favorite British theologian uh, speaks here pretty frequently, but one of the things he noted was that in Britain, he's a conservative, and he's, um, he comes from a conservative tradition, and he said in Britain, because he's conservative, that generally means he's pro, uh, pro-life, but it also means he's pro-environment, right? Th- those things get packaged together in the meaning of conservative in Britain, but when he comes into America, the pro-life part carries over, but the pro-environment doesn't carry over for him. And so when people refer to him as a conservative, they don't mean the same thing he means when he says that word, right? That's sort of a, a low-level example of what I'm trying to get at. We assume that other people mean the same thing we do when we speak. And because of that, we miss each other. We end up talking at each other, not to each other, a lot of the time. And I'm convinced the amount of times that I get into, I get into an argument with somebody, and I'm like, oh, man, we are not talking about the same thing at all anymore. But I'm pretty deeply engaged in this, and I need to win this fight. So, um, <laughs> But so that's, that's kind of where I want to go with is just how, how vocabulary and language begins to shape us. That the words that we use, um, the words that we use start to define our meanings rather than us letting our meanings define us and finding the appropriate words for them. And for the past six weeks, we've been going through these ideas that are sort of well-trod within Christianese, right? Everybody likes the word grace. Nobody knows what it means. Everybody likes the word love. Nobody knows what it means. Um, Everybody likes the word God. Nobody knows what it means. Or maybe maybe nobody, nobody knows. We haven't come to an agreement on what those words mean. And if we haven't come to an agreement, we can't be in relationship with each other. And so today, what I want to do is I want to finish this word. I want to finish this study for, for this, this time um, with wondering how can we develop, us as a community, how can we develop a new language? How can we develop a new vocabulary that pushes us towards the meanings we're trying to chase? How do we have words that describe the kind of people we think God wants us to be, doing the kind of things that God wants us to do? How do we move in that direction and find, find language that can encompass that? And that's kind of where I want to go uh, this morning. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for language. Of all the creatures in the world, Lord, you've called us to be articulate. Of all the creatures in the world, Lord, you've called us to be nuanced. Of all the creatures in the world, Lord, you've called us to sing your praise with our words, not just with our being. The mountains, Lord, are glorious. The trees are beautiful. The rivers are powerful. But none of them speak your goodness. Help us, Lord, to develop words, to develop language that speaks of your goodness, that reminds people who you are, and calls, calls your people home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at the end of the first Christian century, let's call it 70 AD. So Jesus is born in 345, somewhere in there. Um, Jesus lives until 35, 36, 37, somewhere in there. The calendars are off because somebody made a mistake in the Middle Ages. 
Um, Jesus, is, Jesus dies in 36, 37. He's resurrected in 36, 37. The church begins in like AD 40, like really, realistically. So it's at, at that 40. So from the year 40 to the year 70 is the age of the church. The church is growing and blossoming and just exploding all over the ancient Near East. In 70, there's a fight. It's a fight that everybody's been able to see coming. It's one Jesus talks about. It was so visible from space that Jesus talks about it. Um, And Jerusalem is destroyed. The the Jewish people thought that they were ready to overthrow Rome. Nobody was ready to overthrow Rome. right? It just wasn't going to happen at any point in time. So Jerusalem is destroyed, completely like abandoned. The temple becomes a cucumber garden. Um, nobody goes there after the temple's destroyed. The whole the temple, the, Jew, uh, the Roman people tell everybody that the Jewish temple was haunted, and so it's abandoned wholesale. Jewish people scatter. There is there is no way to talk about organized Judaism between seventy two A.D. and like two eighty five A.D. It's a remarkable gap, is what happens. The, the Middle East is shaken by this sort of by the sort of violence. Um, the folks, clo- by, by 70, 75, the, clo- the folks that are closest to Jesus have all died except one. And that one has been in a large fight with the Roman Empire. He gets tortured. He gets sent to an island. Um, he starts having like weird visions after his torture. Um, if you've been like religiously traumatized by the book of Revelation, that's what John's doing, right? He's got his own trauma that he's dealing with and God gives them a way through that. And he writes for us what is the close of the New Testament canon. The last books of the New Testament are written by the Apostle John, more or less. There's some people that quibble about that, but for our sakes, we can go with it. After 50 years of thought and meditation and prayer, what we get is the Apostle John's work. So the earliest gospels are working out their theology in real time. The letters of Paul are working out the practices of the church in real time. None of those things come down with a program and a manual that says, do this, do this, do this, do this. They say, oh, we have this question. How do we resolve it? We have this idea. How do we resolve it? We have this problem. How do we solve it? And what you get is the letters that even the gospels, to to a larger extent, are there to solve problems. They're there to collect stories in the New Testament. And then what we get is John. John, deeply rooted in his Jewish traditions, deeply, deeply like, um, articulate in Jewish, Jewish faith and Jewish apocalypticism. And Jewish. John, he's traveled the world. He's been in fights in Rome. John, who has read Peter, James, Paul, he's read all the other guys. He takes all of that, all of that, and sifts it into his work. And so the gospel of John and the letters of John are really really strange. Um, like I just mentioned, if, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that it's weird, right? Um, but even his gospel is weird. Uh, John is not interested in telling you a history. So what's the, does anybody know what the first act in John's gospel is, the first thing Jesus does in John's gospel? He overturns the money changers, the money tables at the temple. In every other gospel, that happens during his Passion Week, during the last week of his life before his crucifixion. John has moved that three years earlier, to the very first thing he does publicly because John wants to tell you a story about Jesus' authority in the temple and Jesus' authority over Judaism. 
Jesus, John wants you to know that Jesus is there for a fight. And I bring this up because it's a key to understanding the very beginning of John's gospel. Whereas Matthew and Mark, nope, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke tell us the Christmas story, right? Angels and wise men and shepherds and all that stuff. Um, John drops into a theological reminiscence. It is really articulate. It's really dense. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a strange way to start the gospel. It's strange in all ancient Near Eastern texts. It's really philosophical. It's really heady. And what John's doing there is fairly fairly intense. Um, When you hear the phrase, in the beginning, as the first words, what's the first thing that you think Jewish people thought of? Genesis chapter 1. So John takes the phrase, in the beginning, which is the very beginning of the Bible, and he does that on purpose. He takes that entire story and is now importing it to his story. He's telling you that this is a new God. This is a new creation. This is the creation story starting over again. From there, he says that there's this thing called the Word, the Logos. There's this thing called the Word, and it has been with God since the beginning. And not only has it been with God since the beginning, every single thing that was ever made was made through this Logos, through this Word. That's a really obscure reference to Psalm chapter 8. In Psalm 8, what the psalmist says is that the wisdom of God was present at the beginning and all creation was made through God's wisdom. So now John is drawing a parallel to these deep Jewish traditions. The word is the logos. The logos was there in the beginning. Every single thing that's been made was made through the logos. The logos is the wisdom of God. Now, interestingly, John is also importing, and sometimes I wonder if scholars don't like get a little loose and fast with the facts. John is importing an entire Greek tradition of wisdom that used the word logos to describe the creative, intentional, and good purposes of creation. So in Greek thought, what's happened is that there, like, it's a reference, the, the way the Greeks phrase it is, it's the force that gives shape, form, or life to the material universe. This is a wisdom, logos is a wisdom word. Jesus is the wisdom of the world. And in this phrase, what John has been able to do is to take this deep and abiding Jewish wisdom creation tradition. He's been able to marry it to this long-standing Greek philosophical tradition and merge them into one in the person of Jesus. John has taken a word with profound meaning and range in all the cultures that he has to swim in, and he has given it a new context with new possibility and new meaning. This, the logos, the word, is the decisive event in all human history. It is through which we have our being and our breath. It's a big deal. For John, this is a huge deal. You won't get the rest of what John's doing in his gospel if we don't get this idea 
that Jesus is the wisdom, the creative energy, the power of God manifest in all the physical creation around us. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his time with his friend John had changed John. Um, in seminary, one of the things, when we, when we studied seminary, you start like Greek, right? It's Greek, I think it's 501 because it's grad school. Um, Greek 501, you do John's gospel because John's kind of dumb. John has a very limited vocabulary. John uses about 20% of the words that Paul uses in his, in, his, in his writing. Paul's actually pretty advanced in his vocabulary. But here's this guy capable of trafficking not in words, but in complex theological and philosophical realities rooted in the presence and the person of Jesus. And what I'm afraid has happened, I'm afraid that instead of our lives having, excuse me, instead of our, having our lives, our meanings, our identities and our purposes baptized into Jesus, renewed by the creator of the universe, the source of light and life in the world, that instead we've attempted to baptize Jesus into our meanings, our purposes, our lives, and our activities. Instead of saying, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, Jesus, you are the creator and therefore Lord of my job and my marriage and my kids and my neighbors and my family, whatever it is. What we've said is, Jesus, I have all these things and I'd really like you to come affirm them. I'd like to take you on and take you and baptize you into my meanings instead of having my meanings adjusted to you. Maybe... Maybe we become like first century Israel when we do that. And we become so sure of our cultural identity as God's people. We become so self-assured that God loves us and hates everybody else that we forget that we've been sent to the world to redeem and restore all the creation and that every human being we meet bears the image of God. Israel forgot that. And it broke them. Because Israel becomes insular, because Israel becomes focused on themselves, because Israel is sure that they can be corrupted or co-opted by outside forces, Israel abandons its mission to the people around them. Now the people that they've been sent to love, they won't talk to. Or maybe we become like the first century Greeks, so sophisticated and so wise that we're willing to take Jesus as one more God. The Greeks and the Romans are fine if you want to build a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. Put him next to Zeus, that's fine. Put him next to Zeus, pay your taxes. That's all they want. The Greeks are so sure that they're smarter than everybody else. They're so sure that they're more sophisticated than everybody else that Jesus just becomes one more trophy on the mantle place instead of letting their lives and their culture be arranged around the wisdom and the creative energy in the life that flows from Jesus resurrected. How do we, how do we allow the meaning of Jesus, the meaning of the logos, to infiltrate our language? And how do we allow the language of the word of God, of the Messiah, to begin changing our meanings? John's idea is that we are changed not by our intellectual ideas. 
We will not be changed by changing our minds. We will not be lectured or philosophized into faith. We will come to have our meaning changed. We will come to have the things that we desire changed by spending time in God's presence. Look at chapter uh, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. I almost didn't write this part because it's so trite. And you've heard it. If you went to youth group, I'm about to bore you. Not our youth group because our youth group is awesome. If you, went to, um, if you went to youth group growing up or you grew up in traditional church, I'm about to bore you to death. If we would like to have our language and our meaning changed in our life, it's because we're spending time with Jesus. That's it. There is no other way to do it. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, when I look at my own life, when I hear the lives of this church reflected around me, we don't want more time with Jesus. We want Jesus to fix the problems so we can go on doing our own thing. We want to continue doing the things that we have always decided are right. And we don't want Jesus to ask us hard questions about our own stuff. And so we don't spend time with the logos. If we want changed, it will be because we let the word of God dwell among us. Let's get the low, let's get the low hanging fruit out of the way. This is, this is just me Again, this is full youth ministry sermon. If we want to hear from God, every tradition in from the earliest church to today says we start with prayer. When was the last time you sat down and prayed? When was the last time you stepped and said, God, here's what's happening in my life? And gave God space to say, oh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Now, I know that prayer is weird, right? There's a million different ways for you to pray, and all of them are great. Um, Justin has spent the last 10 years or so exploring, like, Richard Rohr's tradition and the mystic, the mystic end of the Catholic Church and has just deeply benefited from that in a way that he didn't pick up in his evangelical tradition earlier. Beautiful, Right? My Presbyterian background would have you read the Book of Common Prayer. Just read it. Just read it and, and let it do. You could go and you could pick a different book, a different psalm every day and just pray that psalm line by line. Whatever you do, I'm not here to prescribe. I'm just here to ask the question, if we want more time, if we want more of a relationship with God, but we spend no time with God, it seems odd. And I'm afraid because either we've had our feelings hurt or because we've been disappointed or because we found that God is sovereign and does what he wants to do, even when we'd rather he do other things, that we stopped going to him in prayer. Um, as we're about to hit this season of Lent, this is a good time to start prayer again. If you need help, reach out. We've got books, we've got practices, there's resources, there's podcasts, there's just tons and tons and tons of things. If we want to be changed by the logos, by the creative force that animates all the world, I know it's trite. It starts with prayer. It starts with letting the God of the universe speak to us and to have the amount of permission and time in our life that we give to other folks. 
The second thing, if we want to create ways, space for God to dwell in us, if we want to see God in his glory, if we want God to change our language and to change our hearts so that we're aligned with him, we need to be spending more time in scripture every day. And again, there are hundreds and hundreds of ways to spend time in scripture. Um, I like a historical approach. I like to study and to dissect and to read things. Maybe that's not you, right? You can pray scripture, you can sing scripture, you can listen to scripture, whatever it is. If we want our hearts and our minds to be changed by the logos, when we spend time in scripture, what we say is every day, I'm allowing my thoughts to be directed by somebody who has been faithful to the same God I'm faithful to thousands of years ago. I am now joined with my brother or sister in a transcendent thing from thousands and thousands of years ago. (laughs) Slowly, methodically, soak your mind and your spirit and your body in the story of Jesus. Just read the Gospels. Say, start, start Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Just read the Gospels for all of Lent. Read the words of Jesus. Just start there. Don't have any agenda. Don't ask for anything. Don't ask for understanding. Just spend time with God's word and see if things don't change. See if your mind doesn't change. See if your thoughts don't change. See if you aren't drawn back around. And you're gonna come to a place where you absolutely disagree with my interpretation of scripture because I am wrong entirely too often. And in a church like ours, what we desperately need is people who are able to say, no, 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 I think God's saying this. I think God's saying this. And then we work together to see God's purposes achieved. And finally, you have to have three points in every sermon. Finally, we're going to take Jesus seriously at his word. We're going to take Jesus seriously at the things he says. My favorite favorite passage of scripture, especially when I'm sort of like at war with other churches, which I get sometimes. Um, In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us how to spend time with him. Jesus tells us, if you want to spend time with me, if you want to know where I'm at, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Is there anyone in your sphere right now who is hungry or thirsty or lonely, who is struggling financially, who is sick, who is imprisoned? Yes. You live in a culture that is the most imprisoned culture on the planet. We put more people in prison than any other culture in the world. There is opportunity for us to go spend time with the imprisoned. And Jesus himself has promised that's where we'll find him. Jesus himself has promised that's where he'll be. I think he can be other places, but he's promised us he'll be at those places. I know, I know that we're in an age where we're used to being able to customize everything and personalize everything, and we find our presence, and we find our identity, we find our personality types, and we say things like, well, that's not how I connect with God, or that's not how I worship God, or that's, that's not the thing that I do. Um, and hear me say, those things that you do individually that, that connect you with the logos and the word and that are shaping you, those are beautiful and good and true. But I don't know that we start there. I believe we start 
with these basics. We start with the disciplines and the practices of the church that have been modeled and have been successful for thousands of thousands of years. It doesn't matter what time. It doesn't matter what place. It doesn't matter what language. It doesn't matter what your financial background is. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. Every single place that Christians have tried prayer and scripture and spending time with the people Jesus calls to spend time with, they find themselves growing in the spirit. And as we go into Ash Wednesday, as we go to a time for Lent, as we go into a time to prepare ourselves for Easter, I can think of nothing we should want more. To do that, to do that, we have to be people who speak a new language. People who know how to talk through the logos of grace, of salvation, of forgiveness, of confession, and all those things. I'm going to ask the band to come back down and lead us into our time of communion. And what we find here is a new kind of language. What we find here is the logos of the universe saying, this is the way things get done here. I know that if you're Greek, I know that if you're Greek, you go and do things a different way. I know that if you were Jewish, you went and did things a different way. The logos of the universe has said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come and lay down your lives and pick up the burden of Jesus, which is light. And so as you come, as you come to the table, dip the bread and the juice. Ask God to give you a new vocabulary. Ask God to give you a new way to imagine, a new way to speak, so that, so that the logos of the universe might be just let loose on the earth. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the way you meet us in the middle of our lives and in all these things that we do. Lord, I pray that you would give us a new vocabulary. Give us a way to speak of your goodness and your newness. Give us a way, Lord, to be present in your wisdom, to be the new creation, Lord, everywhere that we go. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.